So we're at an interesting moment in the life of our country where the number one movie in the United States is about a demonic clown stalking seven middle schoolers. I'm not telling you you should or shouldn't applaud for that. I'm just saying that's the fact of the matter. And so this cultural trend has caused me to just look back into Stephen King, the the author upon whom this book is based. I've never read anything by this man, but I remember even in high school that in the library of my high school, all of the Stephen King books had this place of prominence, sort of as if the librarian was trying to invite us to come read these things. And I would check the books out and never read any of them, but I would sort of stack them up on my desk so that people thought that I read lots of books. I just never read them myself. And so I've been kind of just looking into Stephen King, and and the thing that seems universally agreed upon is that he is an incredibly gifted writer. Uh, He's gifted at what we would call world-building, giving you a sense that you're hearing a story from an actual place. Uh, He's also incredibly gifted in character development. You you care about the people in his stories. He's he's gifted in developing a sense of tension. Uh, You read his stories, and, and you're afraid, as you ought to be, if he's doing his job as a horror writer. But the one thing that it seems like everybody agrees on, based on my week's worth of research since this movie came out, is that he's really, really bad at ending his stories. And so I was on a message board like two or three days ago, uh, and it was just about how bad Stephen King endings are. And so there's this understanding, when you read his stories, you should expect to be less than satisfied by the conclusion. You should expect to be let down. That's not because it's sad, although some of them are sad. It's because it feels like he didn't try at all. It feels like he he did a really good job of building this world and these characters you care about, and then he just kind of fizzles out at the end, and he's like, ah, let's wrap this up. And there's this instinctive understanding in people that when it comes to storytelling, when it comes to art, when it comes to making a statement, the ending matters. And so people recognize that for all of King's gifts in storytelling, his failure to be able to end his stories is a significant blow to his credibility. You know, bands wrestle intensely with what do we end this record on when they actually put out full-length records because the last song on the record is meant to make a statement about the whole body of work. It's, It's meant to sort of put a bow on all of these songs that they've labored over. And so they wrestle with how do I end this record? Those are the two biggest questions in a band, at least in every band I've been in. How do we start it and how do we end it? Uh, authors, maybe with the exception of Stephen King, wrestle about how to end their stories. What, what are going to be the last paragraphs that I leave people with when they come to a conclusion? Filmmakers go back and forth about what's the last shot in this movie. And some of the greatest movies are the ones that have these ending shots uh, that sort of stick in the mind of the viewer. And, and not just in art, we understand the significance of endings even in people's day-to-day lives. There's this whole genre of famous last words. We know that, that although it doesn't totally erase the entirety of a person's life, somehow what they choose to spend their final breath saying is important, it's significant. How we end things matters. And today we come to the end of 2 Corinthians. And after all of the pain, all of the anger, all of the frustration, all of the ache that this book expresses, here is how Paul chooses to end his letter, his final words that we have documented to the church in Corinth. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. 
Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul's final few sentences to the Corinthians begin, fittingly, with him saying, finally. Uh, The Greek word here sort of causes the reader to reference everything else that's happened. The word finally kind of does justice to it, but really it's more of him saying in the Greek, in light of all of this, now that I've said all of that, with all of this in mind, so he wants you to think back, he wants the Corinthians to think back to my entire letter with all of this in mind, rejoice. That is a strange way to end a letter that has been as heavy and as weighty and as harsh and as jarring as 2 Corinthians. But he says, in light of all of this, rejoice. You know, I hear, I hear two criticisms of Christianity very often from uh, secular friends of mine. The first uh, and the second, I think, are equally valid depending on which strand of Christianity you find yourself in. Uh, The first criticism is that Christians are overly happy, they're overly peppy, in a way that seems out of touch with the way that the world actually is. I feel that. Like, I'm a naturally glum person. And so I have to force myself to, to be peppy. But, but maybe you felt that. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you aren't a Christian. And you've turned on the abomination of Christian radio. <laughs> and you hear these people singing about pain and suffering and loss, but they don't sing about it like people who have actually experienced it. They sing about it like people who have observed it through a glass wall, but that they don't really know anything about pain. It's this sanitized understanding, this peppy, positive spin on pain that seems woefully out of touch with the world that we're in. Or or maybe you've sat in a church service on a Sunday morning, dying inside as people clap and cheer and celebrate as though they have no idea what's going on outside the walls. The second criticism that I've heard that I think can be equally true is that Christians are so obsessed and so weighed down with concepts of sin and judgment and hell that they walk through life with this black cloud over them as though they can't ever really enjoy anything, perpetually afraid of making mistakes, perpetually afraid that God is going to just smite them off of the third rock of the sun if they say a cuss word when they stub their toe. You know, I talked to a friend just this week. He grew up in church, and he's in that weird phase where so many are, where he would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but everything else is up for grabs. And when you start to hear him talk about his experience in the Christian life, it was one of perpetual terror. You do this, you don't do this. If you do what you should not do, you should expect to be smitten. Both of these criticisms can be true, but... But here's what I want you to understand. Maybe you're here and and one or both of those apply to your perspective on the church. I, I want you to hear me say this. Neither of these are the result of being too biblical, but they're the result of being insufficiently biblical. These two sort of perspectives on the Christian life, they don't come from taking the Bible too seriously. They come from not taking the Bible seriously enough. Because here we have what I'm going to argue and what I have argued is the darkest book in the whole New Testament. It is bleak, it is sad, it's depressing. And yet at the end of all this pain, all this ache, all this frustration, all this darkness, Paul says, rejoice. He doesn't end his conversation with the Corinthians with a sigh of despair, but with a shout of joy. Finally, in light of all of this, rejoice. 
One commentator says this, Paul's call to rejoice is intended to lift the eyes of the Corinthians above their present condition. To see the unconditioned good that God has given them in Christ. So maybe you're here this evening, and you are or are not a Christian. And you find yourself now in the midst of darkness, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of frustration, in the midst of pain. We, we want to be more biblical. We want to be sufficiently careful to hear what the scriptures have to say. We don't want to be the sort of people in this ministry or in this church that stifle your pain or tell you to stuff it down and quench it or silence it. We want to enter into that with you. We want to mourn with you. We want to be frustrated with you about the difficulty of life. But in the midst of that darkness with Paul, we want to call you to rejoice even still. He moves from the call to rejoice to saying this, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, another. live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So Paul levies this appeal to the church to be restored and reconciled. And that, that charge kind of goes in 15 different directions. Obviously, there's all sorts of conflict in the church, so they need to be restored to one another. They need to end the conflict that's tearing the church apart. They also need to end the conflict that exists between them and Paul. They need to be restored to Paul. But more than being restored to Paul, they need to be restored to the truth of the gospel that they've rejected in rejecting Paul. It is a call that they would turn back to the truth. Now, 21st century, you, you may hear this charge of restoration and say, well, that doesn't apply to us because we don't have apostles in these days and we're not rebelling against any apostles. This is sort of a time-bound command for this particular church that has nothing to do with us. But I actually think that every single one of Paul's commands and his promises don't just pertain to the people he's talking to. They pertain to us here and now. He says to them, aim for restoration. Or be restored, literally in the Greek. You know, um, this year is the 500th anniversary of this significant event in world history called the Protestant Reformation. So October 31st is going to be 500 years to the day that this monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to a church door in Wittenberg. And one of the battle cries of that movement in the church in Latin was semper reformandum, semper, semper whatever, something like that. I, I didn't take Latin in high school. I read these things. I never say the words out loud. I say them in my head. I realize I probably mispronounced it. Um, but the literal translation of this, this sort of battle cry that drove these men is always reforming. Now, contrary to what you might experience in like a miserable reformed message board on Facebook, uh, that statement is not a call to just turn everyone into Calvinists. That, that, that's not what they meant by that. But, but what they were sort of getting out here is that this recognition that there's an inclination in you and in I and in the church at large to continually turn away from the, church, the truth, to continually prefer error. And so we are always reforming in the sense that we are always coming back to the fountain of the Bible and turning our course back in line with it. We're always returning to the truth of the scriptures and making sure that we've understood it rightly and we're living in light of it. That is not just the call of the church. That is the call of you in your life. 
That like Paul said to the Corinthians, you, yourself, in your life, in your walk with the Lord, that you would aim for restoration. That you would aim for being reconciled to the truth of who God is and to live in the shadow of what he's accomplished in Christ. And then he goes on. And he starts giving them these direct commandments for how to treat one another. He says, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. The love, the God of love and peace will be with you. And it's easy to listen to all those sort of commandments, to agree with one another, to love one another, to comfort one another, and miss the fact that each of these actions is rooted in his first statement. Be restored. Be restored to the truth. And in light of that, in the soil of truth, in the, in the firm foundation of what God has done, once you recognize that, in light of that, comfort one another. In light of that, agree with one another. In light of that, be at peace with one another. It's all rooted in the gospel. Comfort, restoration, peace. Maybe you're the sort of person who's been trying to do that in this church or whatever church you're in. You're, you're trying to comfort the people in your church that are suffering. You're, you're trying to uh, live at peace with people. You're, you're trying to be in agreement with people, and it's not going well. It's a source of frustration. The, the people you're trying to be at peace with would much prefer conflict. The people you're trying to comfort would much prefer to wallow in their misery in some sort of like Taylor Swiftian style um, misery complex. And the people that, you, uh, that you're aiming for um, restoration with, they, they have no interest in that. And maybe you're just tired and you hear Paul telling you to do all these things and you're saying, I've tried, it doesn't work. But Paul's commandment here to, to the church in Corinth and to us, it comes with a promise. He says, as you do these things, as you comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, the God of love and peace will be with you. He doesn't promise that this is going to get easier. He doesn't promise that life in the church is going to be without frustration, without difficulty, without conflict. But he promises that as you walk in peace, in agreement, in comfort with one another, you don't walk alone, but that God walks with you, that the God of love walks alongside you as you comfort each other. You know, so often, I don't know if what we need in our darkness is answers to why. I mean, we think we want answers, but, but even when we have answers, it doesn't really make it any less bleak. More often, what we need in the midst of our difficulty is to know that we're not alone, the answers may help, but the presence of someone walking with us is of infinitely more value. And that's the promise that Paul gives the Corinthians. As you walk in this, you will not walk alone, but God will be with you. And then he makes this super awkward statement that probably made you cringe as you heard it. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. If I or anybody else in this ministry greeted you tonight with that, you would rightly press charges and never come back. Um, so what is this? It's kind of a strange statement. Uh, it appears a couple times in the New Testament. Uh, if you read some of the early church fathers, it was something that they practiced. What is it? Well, 
when you look at the life of Jesus, there is, it seems, this custom that was present among Jewish people that that, that was how they showed not romantic or erotic affection, but just how they showed affection to, to somebody that they cared for. You see it sort of preserved in European culture where all these people say, don't you know, and we're Birkenstocks with socks, and they sort of kiss each other from cheek to cheek when they greet one another. It's this sort of way of showing friendship, which is why it's such a big deal that Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, because it's this sign of friendship and affection, and he's turning Jesus over to be killed. So this was a common thing in the church for probably the first one to 200 years of Christian history, but then a whole bunch of pagans became Christians, and they started taking advantage of it. And so they said, we're not doing this anymore. This is no bueno. So, holy kiss, not a thing that we do now or really need to continue to do, but the spirit of this practice, the heart of this practice, was that your love for people and for one another in the church wouldn't just be something that you internally felt or maybe said from time to time, but that there would be physical demonstrations of the fact that you count one another as people who are loved in Christ and who are your brothers and sisters. You know, it's super, super easy for you to say, yeah, man, I love the people in my church. And I love the people at college and career while never interacting with them, while never caring for them in any way, uh, while never showing any sort of tangible sign of affection. So, so the purpose of this was that the love that Christians had for one another would not be something that they just sort of kept in their heads and checked off, but that it would be something that was visibly present in the church. That, I think, we can carry on as we care for one another, as we pray for one another, as we talk to one another. So no holy kisses next week. And then he gets to verse 13. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. So Paul comes to the conclusion of this letter. And he he offers at the end of this letter what's called a benediction. Now, you haven't grown up in church, or even if you have grown up in church, that's not a word you're probably familiar with. Uh, but essentially, the word benediction is just a way that we designate a short blessing. It's a short prayer offered on behalf of someone. And you find them all throughout the Bible. You find them all throughout the New Testament. Last 2,000 years of church history, most Christian worship services have ended with a benediction, which is where the, the pastor or the priest or the minister comes out and prays something very short and succinct for the congregation. Would you go and live in this way? Mark does it from time to time as he preaches. May you and I walk in a way that's worthy of Jesus. I do it pretty much every week in college and career where I walk up after the music is over and I say, now may we. And I offer this short prayer and I ask you all to say amen in agreement. And so Paul ends his letter with this benediction. But in this benediction, he invokes the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a Christian you've heard that term, and you know that it's bad to not agree with it, but you don't know why we should agree with it. And if you're not a Christian, you may or may not have heard that term, you think we're crazy for talking about it. And yet, it is absolutely central to what God has done. It is absolutely foundational to what it even means to be saved. Normally, we hear the, the persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, in that order, order, Father, Son, Spirit. Paul doesn't list them in that order. He talks about the grace of the Lord Jesus, the Son, the love of God, who is the Father, and the fellowship 
of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't name them in the traditional order. He names them in the order of experience. He names them in the order in which Christians come to encounter God in the process of salvation. We come to know God first and foremost through the grace of Jesus. That is how we encounter God. Now, grace is a term that we like to throw around a lot. We get grace tattooed on the inside of our finger with a heart. You know, we, we write grace on our aesthetically pleasing Instagram posts. We, we throw grace around a bunch. We don't really ever define it. But Paul, earlier on in his letter, he defines what grace is. He defines the grace of Jesus. He says that the grace of Jesus is that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The grace of Jesus is this, that he stoops down into our sickness, into our doubt, into our darkness, and in his resurrection, he takes us and he raises us up out of poverty into his riches. He lifts us up out of where we were into something glorious. Uh, Church father Theodore Sire puts it like this, Christ is called what we are in order that he might call us to be what he is. That's not to say that you're God by any means. All you need to do is drive home with your eyes closed and you'll realize very quickly you are not divine in any way, shape, or form. And I do not commend that to you in any way, shape, or form. But that is to say that the grace of Jesus is that he has stooped down to where you are in the midst of your brokenness and your pain and your darkness and your frustration. And he's raised you up so that what the Father said of him This is my son, my beloved son, can now be said of you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. We encounter God first through the grace of Jesus. But it doesn't stop at the grace of Jesus. He goes on and he talks about the love of God. He prays that they would know not just the grace of Jesus, but the love of God. When we talk about the love of God, especially in the New Testament, when you see the the Father, the Son, and the Spirit mentioned together, sometimes the Father is just referred to as God. So so a fair translation of this would be the grace of Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You know, if you're not a Christian, first of all, I'm super glad you're here. Um, Second of all, you probably rightly have a sense that Christians almost have this weird relationship with God where they think that he's desperately angry with them. You know, I remember having an online debate with somebody, which is why I deleted my Facebook, because I hate those. Um, (laughs) And he was like, you know, the Father is this mean, angry God, and Jesus comes to smooth it over. You know, as, as though the Father is the dad with the shotgun, humanity is the dog who has rabies, and Jesus is the kid who says, no, Pa, don't kill him. It's an old yeller reference. And yet, that's not the Bible's picture of the Father. Yes, there is wrath, there is judgment, there is anger against sin. We talked about it last week. But Jesus' death on the cross is not motivated by God's hatred for mankind, but his love for his people. His anger against sin. And it's in the grace of Jesus that you come to encounter 
Not the judgment of God, but the love of God, the Father. As you are drawn up into the life of the Trinity. You know, John, uh, in one of his later letters, he, he reflects on this and he says, See the love with which the Father has loved us, that we might be called sons of God. And so we are. You know, I'd like to think that like when I was a kid, I had pretty good relationships with my friends' parents. That sounds weird when I say it out loud. Um, but what I mean by that is nobody ever said, yeah, you can't play with Travis. Because I was a pretty good kid, probably overly good. I was obnoxious, like I would tell on my friends when they did bad things. And so I feel like parents were like, yeah, we want Timmy playing with Travis. You'll keep Timmy from doing bad things. And so there was never like any awkward interactions that I had with adults. Like, I didn't mind having conversations with my friend's mom or dad in middle school. But there was a difference in the way that I talked to my friend Josh's dad or my friend Jordan's dad from the way that I talked to my dad. It's not that I didn't like Josh's dad. It's not that I didn't like Jordan's dad. It's not that I didn't think they were cool and nice and funny. But it was different with my dad because he's mine. And he knows me well, and I know him well. And that's not to say that he didn't ever rightly punish me as a kid, because I did bad things too, even though I told on other kids. I would normally tell on myself, because I just had a guilty conscience. But it was different. The difference between the father of a friend and my own father. And yet, we find ourselves here as Christians. That... Through the grace of Jesus, God is not just a father, but he has become our father who art in heaven. As Jesus taught us to pray, we are not speaking to a distant father of someone, but he has become ours. And he loves us as his adopted sons and daughters through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And I wonder if we don't miss something profound by throwing up vague sort of, hey God, dear God prayers. You sort of pray to this sort of vague cosmic entity, God, rather than saying, Father. Because the right to approach God as our Father was one that was purchased for you by the grace of Jesus. Anybody can pray to God. Jehovah's Witnesses can do that. Mormons can do that. Hindus can do that. We, as the people of Christ the Son, call God Father. Because he has loved us with such a love that we are now his children. And what was Christ has been given to us through grace. So we pray, our Father. I, I wonder, for those of you here who have fathers who failed you, you have fathers who've abandoned you, fathers who've disappointed you, fathers who've never met you before, how significant this is that your earthly father may well have failed you. He may be an absolute piece of garbage, and yet your heavenly father has sought you out to bring you home in the grace of Christ. And it's in doing that, the grace of Jesus, the love of the Father, that we come to experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And this is twofold fellowship. Understand, if you are a Christian in this room, you do not simply belong to God, although you do, but we belong to one another. We have been bound together by the Spirit of the living God as we who call God our Father. 
and share in the grace of Christ. We experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit as we are bound up in the spirit of the triune God. Now, I realize this is a lot. I realize the Trinity is confusing. I realize this is a difficult to wrap our minds around, but here's, here's what I want you to grasp. Here's what's so significant about this. God could have saved us however he wanted, or not at all. He has no obligation to save people who set their face against him, and he has no obligation to save in the way that he has saved. And yet, he saved us in this way, that he opens up his very life to us. He saves us in this way, that through the grace of the Son, we are drawn up into the love of the Father as we share in the fellowship of the Spirit. He doesn't just save us from hell. He saves us so that we can know him. He doesn't just sort of pull us out of the fire and say, okay, have fun. But he saves us in such a way that we can know him as he is, that he can open his life up to us. Not just that we're no longer objects of wrath, but that we are sons and daughters in the grace of Christ. This is the ending of Paul's letter. For all of the heartache, all of the controversy, all of the pain, all of the frustration that has marked this monstrosity of a letter, he does not end it with curses, he doesn't end it with warnings, he doesn't end it with threats. He ends it with this reminder of what the triune God has done. Because he knows that this is Corinth's only hope. And 2,000 years later, it is our only hope that through the grace of Christ we would experience the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that it would be so for you and it would be so for us here in the College and Career Ministry.